John chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Early on the first day of the week. By the way, the first day of the week in Jewish culture, in Roman culture, is Sunday. Uh, Interestingly, even to have to worship on the first day of the week meant for many in the early church to wake up early before they went to work in the morning on the first day of the week. So on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. The other disciple is how John refers to himself. The one Jesus loved and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Just a little historical anecdote that John thought he'd throw in there. I'm sure he and Peter had many arguments about who was faster over their years of ministry together. This settles it once and for all, at least for us. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, by the way, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. And they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away. She said, I don't know where they put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll, I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Don't hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now, it's an amazing passage, of course, to have the historical record show us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. And it's written in such a way that historians have been befuddled to try to poke holes at it because there's no mark of myth anywhere in this narrative. As a matter of fact, many who study out historical genre have been marveled at the idea that this seems as though they invented a new genre of realism many centuries before it was ever put into place in any sort of historical record keeping in later years. That it was already in place here. And the reason being is, is that there are too many embarrassing details that the gospel writers include. That Peter denied the Lord. Peter, the hero, denied the Lord three times. Third time, calling down curses on himself. May God strike me dead if I'm part of this Jesus thing. 
If you're trying to write a heroic myth, it's not the kind of stuff you include. That Simon of Cyrene, a foreigner, had to be the one to come to Jesus' aid to carry his cross instead of one of his own disciples. That a hated Roman centurion had to be the one to declare the divinity of Jesus. Surely this is the son of God instead of one of God's chosen people. And that women had to be the witnesses, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection in a culture where Josephus, a historian of that time, writes, in a trial, better to have three witnesses, if not three, then at least two. And those must be of credible lifestyle. And they must, this is sadly what he writes, and they must not be women. For women have no legal status as eyewitnesses, for their natures are given to frivolity and to rashness. And so women weren't even allowed to be legal witnesses. And yet here the gospel writers have them as the legal witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As historians try to make sense of all this and wonder because John's purpose in writing this gospel, he clearly states a couple verses later, I'm going to read from 20 verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why did he write this? So that we might believe. And if he was trying to convince us, well, then why would he include these undermining details? Like women, says, here's the, the conclusion for, for those who are even secular, having studied the text. Why did he include it? Because that's the way it really happened. And that we have here the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That without a doubt, we can know from the recorded, from these words that are written, that he is risen. And this morning, I had the great joy of of calling, and I've I've told this story on many Easter's, Paul, Paul uh, Hutchins is a, a member of our church. He's, he's in the South Beach region. But for many years, his dad, Stuart, would call him on Easter morning. And he would call him and he'd say at, at the break of dawn, you know, 6.35, son, he is risen. And, and Paul would be like, oh, thanks, dad. He's like, no, 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 son. Don't you know that through the ages, the church has had the back and forth of being able to declare with great affirmation, he is risen only to have thundering back as an immediate response. He is risen indeed. And so Stuart would then try to disciple his son. Come on, son. Let's, let's try it again. So again, he would, all right, Paul, ready? He is risen. And Paul, having just woken up, says, he, he is risen indeed. <laughs> son, what is that? With gusto this time. This is Jesus. This is the resurrection. Everything changes. We date the world from the son. Come on. Let's do this thing. You know, and and by the end, Paul said that his dad wasn't satisfied unless he knew 
without having FaceTime back then, unless he knew that Paul was literally jumping up and down on his bed, screaming, He is risen indeed! It's like a Jerry Maguire scene of sorts. So, church, let's try it one more time with gusto. Oh, and, and by the way, before I say this, I, I, I called at, at 6.30 this morning, Stuart. Stuart, who now lives here. And Stuart, after 79 years of really having a, 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 an effort at pursuing Christ, this past year, finally recognized from the scriptures where he was and recognized that he finally needed to truly be re- to, to repent and be baptized into Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. <laughs> and so this year, as I called him, for, for the first time, he, he was able to, to really say, as, as a brother in Christ, as one really reborn, the, the, the great response. And so, church, he is risen. He is risen. That's what I'm talking about. So he is risen. I'm going to have to say it a few times more, so we're good. So, so he is. <laughs> you guys are too good. That's the trouble right now. So he is that thing, right? It's like in our house, you can't say Alexa, you can't say Siri, or else all sorts of things go off. So, so anyway, you know, this fact about Jesus is true. So what? So what? What's, what's, what is the deep implication? Hopefully it's not just that spring has sprung and that, you know, that there's a, a better feeling about things. So let's go to Peter, the one who got outrun in that uh, trip to the, the tomb. You know, interesting, Mark's gospel is Peter's account. And that part of the story just doesn't appear in Mark. It just mentions that Peter went to the tomb first. In Mark, you know, as John also says, well, I outran him, but he went in first. When Peter tells the story, it's just, I got there first. So, see a little bit of their humanity coming through. All right, 1 Peter chapter 1. Title of the sermon today is The Hope of Easter. Verse 3. This is like mad flow from Peter. This is Peter overwhelmed that he, of all people, could have the effect of Jesus on his life. And as he writes a letter to a church that is being beat down in persecution, this is Nero time. This is difficult times for the church here when First Peter is written. And, and here, with just, I mean, untethered enthusiasm, Peter just is beginning to bring it with the joy of one that has known Jesus. And here in verse 3 he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Oh, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes though refined in fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The hope of Easter is many-fold. 
And we see Peter beginning to be able to just spout philosophic, to, to, to wax eloquent about the wonders of why not only what happened on the cross was not only so redemptive and atoning for us, but what happens in that empty tomb is likewise so immensely important. And my first point today is, oh, he is risen. Oh, let me move on. You're going to say, <laughs> my first point is we've moved on. I guess I meant to have said all that stuff earlier during that slide. But anyway, my first point is we all get a do over. We all get a do over. Now, I don't know if this was a big thing when you were a kid, but it was, this was like a golden rule that was part and parcel of playing the game in the road that we played in front of my house. And the game in the road that, that we played had many various rules. And they changed day by day depending on what cars were parked in the road. And it was a form of stickball, but it involved a tennis racket and all different lines of whether you got a single, a double, or a triple. But because there were so many intricate rules, at any point in time, if you thought the other people didn't really quite understand everything, you would have, of course, invoke the great grace of do-over. Do-over. It was like the games went on forever because of do-over here. And to finally stop the game was a pretty amazing thing. But when, when, when times are, are, are really a mess, I think to, to know that not just in the game in the road, which was the official game name of the game in the road, but not just in the game in the road, but that for our lives, oh my goodness, after you get to be a certain age, I think you really do appreciate the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that there is an empty tomb that gives us the reality of actually having a do-over on life. Amen. And why, why is that do-over so critically important? Well, it's so critically important because of what, what Peter says a little later on. Uh, read with me. Just look forward a little bit. In verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Redeemed from what? Redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Why did I need a do-over? Because I had built a life of emptiness. I had an empty way of life as had many generations before me, had an empty way of life. Oh, sure, I had moments of fun. I had the game in the road, of course. You already know about that and all that goes with that. And, and I had achievement. I had athletic achievement. I had scholastic achievement. I had professional achievement and family. You know, I had all that. But, but there's something really important when, when we allow our minds to be still. And, and we really do allow ourselves to contemplate the depth of life when I really recognized how empty my life was. Why? Because I was trying to put all of my stock in things that were created rather than in the creator. And when I began to take any sort of comfort or security in created things rather than in the creator, well... The Bible calls that idolatry. 
that I was getting my security and I was getting my meaning and I thought that my life was somehow transcendent based on very temporal, very basic, very created things. I was focused on creatures, creation, rather than the creator. And all things fall before God. And, and here's the, the sad part that we see from the Bible. Is that when you begin to worship anything other than God, it begins to twist and torture and empty us. It, the, the, the worship of an idol is a very damning thing to our soul. And it, it does a number. And I know that my soul became darker and darker. The more that I put my stock in my ambitious acceleration of my career, uh, the more that I put stock in how nice my lawn looked in the subdivision of North Dallas, the more that I put my stock in the fact that I had a really good company car and my second car was a Volvo station wagon, so I must have really arrived. The more, I mean, you could go on and on about all of these different things that, that you know, that, that I had above average children, like, like Wobegon kids, that, that I, you know, had the kind of the, the life that others might look at with, with, with some sort of uh, envy of, of different degrees, that any of that, Sadly, at the end of the day, when I allowed myself to really still my mind, I, I began to recognize that, you know what? I'm building a house of cards. And I am, I am just an empty suit. And I am a farce. And I need to be filled with something so much more than what it is that I'm trying to manufacture in and of myself. God wants us to realize that every one of us. But it's, it's getting harder and harder to see the emptiness of our way of life because the world is happy to provide distraction or amusement, which, which literally means to distract you, amusement, from the things that matter most. And where you might have sat in your dorm room with your roommate and thought, you know, looked up at the ceiling and talked about, so what do you think the meaning of life is? those conversations don't really happen anymore. Instead, you're both watching something on your iPads or you're both playing games on your iPhones at that point in time. And the chance to be able to really allow the fulfillment that God wants us to know is being squeezed out with silly amusements which are empty themselves. And it's just emptiness trading places with emptiness to keep us from thinking about the depth of the emptiness of my soul. You know, I'm reminded of that scene in Lion King when Timon and Pumbaa are, you know, lying on the ground and looking up at the stars. And, you know, one of them says, you ever wonder what those things are up there? And I think one says, I think they were like little kind of pinpricks of life up in the, up in the sky. And, and I think it was Pumbaa who said, huh, I always thought of them as big swirling balls of gas. Oh, well, who am I to think that? He was very flatulent. That was why he thought that. And it turns out they are big swirling balls of gas up, up there nonetheless. But let me ask you this. Have you had a chance to really take stock of your life and to see, does it really have a transcendent purpose that gives meaning to your family, to your career, to your achievements, to your character? What is the overarching purpose that defines and gives value to all of those things. 
And oftentimes when I ask that, people just say some of the same things that I just said. Well, my family gives birth. No, no, no. What is the overarching purpose that gives meaning to your family? What is the overarching purpose that gives meaning to your, to your career? If there is nothing that is beyond that, then the sadness is you will one day come to the realization of how empty empty can be. But that's fine because we all get deluded and seduced by the emptiness that the world as a siren call really puts before us. And we, we all head in the, the empty direction of those rocks. But, but instead, God wants you to recognize that there is a Jesus that came to disrupt the amusement. There's a Jesus that pushed away all of the furniture and all of the distractions that we cannot ignore. The evidence is too great. The magnificence of him is unmistakable. This Jesus has come here to help us to see that the empty path that we are taking does not need to be our path. And even if we've shipwrecked ourselves many times over in our relationships, maybe you put your stock in your kids and your kids right now are saying, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Maybe the great purpose of your life was your, your spouse. And in, right now that's at a stage where that has come to become a cold war. And it, and it seems as though it's irreparable. All of these are, are the signs of emptiness that Jesus wants to heal. And no matter what has been emptied, Jesus is looking to provide through his overflowing grace, the fulfillment that really is yours. His great mercy is an overflowing mercy that has no end, that recognizes that it doesn't matter how badly you have emptied it all out, how badly you have chosen the meaningless, vain things of this world instead of me, I'm still ready to give you the do-over. To the degree that it seems unfair that you've done all that you've done and you still get the do-over. That's how I felt. I had so disabused all that he had given me in my life to think, oh my goodness, I've had every advantage and I've, I've literally frittered it all away and now you're, you're coming to me and saying yes. And, and by the way, on top of all of that, you get a do-over so that you're going to be able to have greater fulfillment, greater depth, greater meaning, greater peace than you could have ever imagined again. And, and the reason that there is a resurrection is that Jesus was brought to new life so that we don't just have a transaction of our sins being taken away, but so that even more deeply, we have the chance at becoming a brand new creation. That we get a full on do over new life, as it says here, that in his great mercy, he has caused us to be born into a living hope in he has given us new birth into a living hope. Uh, literally, I think my ESV even says this. He has caused us to be reborn into a new hope. And it's interesting that this reborn that he gives us is not some kind of vague idea where you just think happy thoughts and then you're reborn, but that he really does work in your life to bring you to a depth of conviction, to bring you to a place where you despair of self-reliance, come to repentance and recognize all the gifts that he wants to give you. And he does it in such a clear way, but in also in a, nece a necessary way. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself says in John 3 to a, a religious overachiever in Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you're not even going to see the kingdom of heaven. 
Nicodemus is confused by that. Oh, what do you mean? I mean, I get upside my mother again? Like crawl out? I mean, it's a very graphic thing that he says there. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. Unless you're born of water and spirit, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. It basically just restates it. And that's the beauty of, of Christ's gift as well, is the gift is so clear. Just Justin Martyr, who was, uh, he wrote around 150 AD, probably only um, maybe 60 years after John wrote his gospel. And he wrote, as many as are persuaded and believe that what we teach and say is true and undertake to be able to live accordingly and are instructed to pray and to beg God with fasting for the forgiveness of their sins. And we pray and we fast with them. Then they are brought by us where there is water and they are regenerated in the same manner in which we ourselves are regenerated. For in the name of God, the Father, the Lord of the universe, the Savior, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and then receive the washing with water. For Christ also said, except you be born again, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that it is impossible for those who have once been born to enter into their mother wounds, that's evident to all. And for this, we have learned from the apostles this reason. Since at our birth, we were born without our knowledge or choice by our parents coming together. And we were brought up in bad habits and wicked training in order that we may not remain the children of necessity of ignorance, but we may become the children of choice and knowledge and may obtain in the water over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins, the name of God, the father and of the Lord of the universe. And I, I like what he says here is that, you know, when you're born naturally, you don't ever take credit for that either. Right? Who, who says, you know what? I did a little number there. I, I was able to convince my parents to, to, to go ahead and get on together so that I could make it into this world. No, nobody is ever. You can imagine some people trying in their arrogance, but, but nobody has ever gone that far. And, and I like the idea that here it says... He has given us new birth to keep us ever from thinking, look what I did. You know what I did? I emptied myself of any value. I emptied myself of any significance. And he disrupted and interceded for me. He's the one who made me new. He is the one who took me when I was dead in sin and made me alive in Christ. I did nothing, nothing of merit, nothing of value. All I did is ultimately recognize, all right, you're right. You're right. Why am I trying to fight against this? Let me finally surrender over to your will for my life and to align myself with your good, pleasing, and perfect will. What, what is there anyone is to, to boast about that other than how many times it took you to get knocked upside the head before you finally surrendered over to the very will of God? Well, it only took me 87 times for, for that. That's a boast? What, what is that? I, I love this idea that we get a do-over and we get no credit for the do-over. Right. And, and, and it's because of that that we get to be able to, to really take heart that this do-over is all courtesy of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he even says later on that, that what we get in this do-over is an amazing inheritance and it's already taken care of by God. It's protected by God. And by the way, if I'm looking to kind of ruin this new life that I have, he even says, and I'm shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Through faith, I am shielded by God. All I have to do is just trust in God and he continues to shield me. 
Now that shielding doesn't keep me from hard times. Matter of fact, the rest of this paragraph is about, and you're going to have a hard time on top of hard time on top of hard time. As a matter of fact, he knows that many of these people, later on he'll talk about, you will be persecuted even to the death. But nonetheless, you will still be shielded in your faith for the inheritance that will for sure be yours. So we all get a do-over. If you've not yet had this do-over, oh my goodness, please. Why, why resist? Why fight? Why not surrender to have the glorious, eye-opening, beautiful peace that is really yours by just simply aligning yourself with God's will for your life? Amen. And, and this, this is no small thing. This is not a step of self-improvement. If you've not had a radical shift in your life, because this do-over, this new birth is so phenomenal that it is unmistakable. To, to say it's anything less than that is to undermine the power of God. There is no doubt the disgusting fraternity scumbag that I was, that having been reborn, every one of my friends can, can, can say nothing but, holy smokes, they say another word there, I can't believe that this is still you. Like, is this a joke? Are you putting me up? Is this a long con that you got going on? What, what is it that's going on? Because it is that confounding to, to, to everybody that I know. And this is not just my testimony. Anybody who is up here who has really been born again says exactly the same thing. And it is the same exact response from their friends. But, but it, all that you've ever experienced is some anemic version of the gospel. Oh my goodness. Settle in and really allow the word of God to bring about what, what it is that he wants to do for you. You have been born again, Peter says, not of perishable seed, but through the living, enduring word of God. I guarantee that if you really sit down with someone with the word of God, this great reality will be yours before you even imagine it. And no thanks to any great effort on your part. And then lastly... When we get the do-over, this time, it's with hope. Hope. Hope is such a massive idea. And you know, to, to illustrate it, let me, let me just go to this video here. Because hope has everything to do with the future. But we often use hope in a way that seems to hedge our bets about the future. But biblical hope, the way elpidzo in the Bible, the, the Greek word elpidzo, has nothing to do with possibilities only with certainty and nothing less than certainty. Would you shut up about the car? Hey, and another thing, how do you know where I live? Let's just say we're related, Biff. And that big case had a little present for you. Something that'll make you rich. You wanna be rich, don't you? Oh yeah, sure, right, that's rich. <laughs> You're gonna make me rich? You see this book? This book tells the future. It tells the results of every major sports event till the end of the century. Football, baseball, horse races, boxing. The information in here is worth millions. And I'm giving it to you. Well, it's very nice. Thank you very much. Now why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? <laughs> It's a leaf, you idiot. Leaf like a tree and leaf. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. A word that is leaf. And take your book with you. Don't you get it? You could make a fortune with this book. Let me show you. 
which a million bucks UCLA wins up 19 and 17. What do you get? Old man just said it was over. You lost. Oh, yeah. I told you it's in this book. All you gotta do is bet on the winner and you'll never lose. The difference in the way that Biff will talk about the 1972 Dolphins and the way that Marty McFly will talk about the 1972 Dolphins is radically different. They both might be Dolphin fans, and when Marty says, you know, I hope the Dolphins win, it's a real corruption of the word hope. But when Biff says, oh, I hope the Dolphins win, that's the biblical definition of the word hope. And that's the hope that you get this time around, is you get that kind of certainty as, thank you for whatever you're doing, uh, ju just as... Gray's Sports Almanac gave the future for everything from 1950 until 2000 and every sports result. And by the way, is this not freaky? But when Back to the Future goes to the future, the future is two years ago from our time. It's 2015. It'd be interesting to make a list of all the movies that talk about the future and how we're beyond all of those movies already. But, but, but nonetheless, for, for, for Biff, Biff Tannen, he is able with certainty to say that I hope the Dolphins win the 72 Super Bowl. I hope the Cowboys win the 73 Super Bowl. I hope, and you know, onward he goes, to be able to know with that kind of certainty year after year after year about the results of all of those things. This is what the empty tomb does for us. This is why there's the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we, in a sense, get our own stainless steel DeLorean with a flux capacitor to be able to go look down the corridor of time and to be able to see the coming of Jesus and to know that all things will be made new, that you will have imperishable bodies. All of this is ending up in a place that is amazing paradise and wonder for all of us. It is the statement of us. It's better than Gray's Sports Almanac, 1950 to 2000. It's immeasurably more valuable than this little tool that, that he's received here in this movie clip. This is what we have. This is how we live. There is no kind of shifting of shadows in the word hope. I, I ask you, when you read your Bibles, make sure that you stop every time you see the word hope and you don't let it in any way have any uncertainty left in it at all. Hope is a life-changing anxiety-abolishing, joy-injecting certainty about future events that makes your patience or your perseverance in this day merely prudence. It is being so certain about the future that it changes unmistakably the way you live in the present. That's why we have an empty tomb. The empty tomb sets off the events for which all creation groans for recreation. Sets off all events by which all things will be made reconciled in God. The empty tomb is the guarantee that there will be newness of all things. 
All things will be made new. All this is from God. And we get to be part of it. And my, my goodness, God forbid that we're on the wrong side of that, having been given the greatest almanac of all times ahead of time. But we're, we're not without knowledge. We do have it. So let me just beseech you with all that you have. Please run after, run after the new life that the resurrection gives to you. Run after it with all that you have. Grab a friend that's here. If there's any kind of uncertainty in that, make sure that the Bible is the very thing that brings this home. And if you are living in this new life, if you have been reborn of the, the great work of Jesus Christ, reborn of the Holy Spirit, if that is your case, then my goodness, live your life now with the certainty of what's coming your way. If you have the depth of certainty without any sort of vagueness in it whatsoever, my goodness, how ought that change your life? We should be people that are, that are marching with great victory. Sure, there'll be hard times. But nonetheless, in the midst of all of those hard times, we get to make sense of them in the most remarkable way because we already know the outcome. We've got the almanac of almanacs. And in this almanac, it began with an empty tomb and it ends with the return of Christ and it ends with the redemption of all things. We've won. Bet on that. There's no hedging of those bets. It is our life. Let's live for that. And let's, God forbid, not go back to an empty way of life, having been given new life and having been given depth of fulfillment and depth of knowledge of God's will. Knowing where all of this goes, how could we shrink back into mere secularism, into, into mere being a nice person, when we need to be nothing less than ambassadors for Jesus, letting all know of his great plan. Brothers and sisters, we know the end because we know the beginning. And why do we know the beginning? Because he is risen. He is risen. Thank you.